All right, well, good morning. Glad to see everybody here this morning. All of our music's going to be in the blue book. So if you'll turn to page 183, we're going to sing the first and last verses of Jesus Saves on page 183. the first, second, and fourth verses. verses of how great thou art and I'm going to ask everybody who's able to if you'll stand
with you and have forgiveness of our sins. God, I pray if there's anybody listening today that hasn't done that, I pray that they would. And um, Lord, those of us who have, God, just help us to um, remember that fact of how much you love us, Lord, and that you um, continually working on us every day, God, and you want to help us through our struggles and our sins and um, just help us to continually to rely on you. And we love you and thank you for who you are. Help us to learn something new about you today. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Be seated. All right, Romans chapter 3. This morning, Romans chapter 3. The notes look long, but it's again, I just included all the scripture. I wasn't sure if we'd have a powerpoint this morning or not but thank the lord he sent casey along to take care of that for us and so you will have that this morning but romans chapter three remember we started off here in the book of romans and the first three chapters basically are just getting us orientated to the fact that everybody's a sinner we've all sinned and come short of the glory of god and that's, that's the whole point that the Apostle Paul, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, is trying to make here in the first three chapters. Because if we, if we determine in our minds that, that there's some of us that don't need salvation, or there's some of us that don't need Jesus Christ, or that there's some other way that we can take care of things between us and God, then we're going to miss out on eternal life. Because there's only one way to eternal life, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. And so we have to come to the point to where we're willing to admit that I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. If you've never come to that point, you cannot be saved. You've got to come to that point where you realize that you're totally lost and that there's nothing you can do about it. And that there's no way you can pay for it, you can't earn it, you can't... You can't do anything apart from faith in Jesus Christ because He's done it all for us. God has a righteous requirement that has to be paid and only Jesus could do it and He did it on our behalf. Praise God. Amen. Amen. So Romans chapter 3 beginning with verse number 1, the first thing we see here is that God is just in His judgment. Since everybody is a sinner... God is just to judge every one of us. Uh, He says here in verse 1, What advantage then hath the Jew? Remember, he's already been talking about the fact that Jews and Gentiles both are sinners. That uh, it doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. If you keep the law or if you don't, well, I wouldn't say keep if you're under the law or you're not under the law. None of that matters. What matters is how you stand before God. But he says, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? 
He says, much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. What he's saying there is that the Jews were chosen by God to receive the Word of God. They were chosen by God to receive the law of God. They had more light than the Gentiles because God gave them more information. He gave them a greater understanding of who He is and who they are without Him and how the, and, and he gave them the law to keep. And it, we learn in the New Testament that the law was never really given with the intent of man being able to keep it. It was given to show us that we couldn't keep it. That we are sinners. And that we do need God. But you think about the Jews were given the Word of God. So they had a greater advantage than the Gentiles did. Verse 3 says, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Now, you've heard people say that God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. God said it. That settles it. And just because you don't believe it doesn't mean it's not so. The majority of the people in this world today do not believe this Bible. Sad to say that the majority of the mainstream church does not believe this Bible. But that doesn't make it any less true. That doesn't make it any less the Word of God. It just means that they're missing the gift that God has given them to show them who He is and who they are, what He's done for them, and how we need a Savior. So he says, <clears throat> just because they don't believe it, he said, God is always true. Let God be true. And every man be a liar. John fourteen six says, Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now Jesus said himself that he is the truth. He is the truth. Uh, John seventeen seventeen says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The word of God is truth. And who is Jesus? The Bible tells us that Jesus is the word of God made flesh. So Jesus says, I am the truth. The truth is the word of God made flesh. That's how we're sanctified. Do you know what it means to be sanctified? It means to be set apart for a special service to God. Sanctification means to be set apart, to be made holy. And you're made that way through the Word of God. Listen, when you read this book and, you, and the Holy Spirit illumines your heart and mind to the truth that's in this book, then He's able to start working in your heart and mind and changing the way you think and changing your behavior and He's setting you apart to be a vessel that can be used for God. That's sanctification. We're sanctified by the truth of the Word of God. So the latter part of this verse is, is from Psalms 51, verse 4. And if you read it from the Brenton translation of the Septuagint, uh, you can see that uh, that was... You know, some of the New Testament, when you read uh, Old Testament references, you can see that it come from the Septuagint and some from the Masoretic text uh, or the Hebrew text. And so if, if it doesn't look exactly like what you see in your King James Bible, uh, get this Britain copy of the Septuagint and look at it and you'll see a lot of it is word for word just about what the translation is there but at any rate that was free of charge against thee says only this is when David had sinned when David had sinned with Bathsheba and he says to the Lord against thee only have I sinned and done evil before thee 
that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. If you read from Young's literal translation, it, it might seem to make a little more sense to you when he says, Against thee, thee only, I have sinned and done the evil thing in thine eyes, so that thou art righteous in thy words, thou art pure in thy judging. What he's saying here is this, is that God not only has the right to judge, but he's the only one that can judge and judge fairly. And that if even if God could be judged, and he can't be, but even if he could be, he would found not guilty of any wrongdoing in judging every person that ever has lived on the face of this earth or ever will live. He he will not be he could not be found guilty of of judging us. He has the right to judge us. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make here is that it doesn't matter whether you and I believe the word of God or not. God's word is true. And when we stand before him in judgment, he will have every right and have the ability to judge every one of us fairly. And there's nothing that anybody can say. Nobody can say, God, you're not fair, or God, you don't have the right to judge me. Yes, he does. And that's the point that David was making in the Psalms. He says, you're the one I've sinned against, God. You have the right to judge me. And so that's the point that Paul is trying to make here. Verse 5, But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God... What shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we be slanderously reported, And as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Our God's righteousness is seen because of our unrighteousness. Does that make sense? Uh, Our unrighteousness is an opportunity for God's righteousness to shine and to be seen. Because of our sin... God was able to show His love for us. God was able to send His one and only Son to die in our place and pay for our sins. He he was able to allow Jesus Christ to be our sacrifice to God for our sin. He's able to give us salvation and to give us eternal life. And to give us forgiveness of sin. Our unrighteousness allows God, allows us to see His righteousness. As Paul says, I wouldn't have known that covetousness was a sin until the law said, Thou shalt not covet. Right? If you drive up and down the roads and you just drive any speed you feel like driving and there's no signs posted, if the speed limit is 55 but it's not posted anywhere you don't know that you're breaking the law if you're driving 65 you you don't know but when the signs put up that says drive 55 now you know so because of of our unrighteousness you see god was able to show us his righteousness and he's saying here that uh But that doesn't excuse us to be unrighteous. And it doesn't excuse us to sin. Obviously here Paul, and we read it in other epistles, where Paul was falsely accused by some of of teaching what you might call today antinomianism against law or no law. In other words, it's as if Paul was saying, well, you know, look, if I stand here and I tell you that in Christ we're not under the law, if I tell you that you don't have to worry about keeping the law if you're in Christ, some people have a problem with that. 
I've wrestled with it in my own life, not even meaning to, but let's, let's be honest. We all want to know, what do I have to do? When we come to God, we come to God with this idea of what do I have to do to be saved. We want to do something. That's just human nature. Once we place our faith in Jesus Christ, then we say, now what do I have to do to live for God? We're always looking for something to do. And and we get in, in the church and we get it in our minds that if I'm more active in the activities at the church, if I give money in the offering plate every Sunday, and especially if I give a tenth of my income, or even more than a tenth of my income, if, if I pray so many hours a week, if I read so much in my Bible every day, if I go out witnessing and knocking on doors and doing those kind of things, if I do, if I do, if I do, then I've got to be more pleasing to God and, and, and He's got to be more satisfied with me. And we look around, even in the church sometimes, at one another and think, well, you know, I might not be doing all that I ought to do, but I'm doing more than so-and-so. If I come to church every Sunday, you know, when I was a boy growing up, they had uh, these pins that they'd give you each year if you went to Sunday school for a whole year and you didn't miss a day. And uh, I remember some in the church, that, you know, then you get a bar. You get a pen first, and you got a wreath the second year, and then you started getting these bars to hang from it. And some of them had a lot of bars, you know. And you think, wow, they really love the Lord. They really serve in the Lord. I don't have all that. I guess I'm not. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That doesn't mean anything to God. He's not looking at what we do. It's not about what we do. It's about what you believe. You die and go to hell because of your unbelief. Or you die and go to heaven because of your belief. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, the Bible says thou shalt be saved. That's all you have to do to be saved is put your faith in Jesus Christ. You understand what I'm saying? We're all sinners. We come into this world sinners. That means that we are against God. We come into this world with a rebellious attitude toward God. That's what sin really is, is a rebellious attitude toward God. Is God, you're not going to tell me what to do. You're not going to tell me what to do. Isn't that exactly what Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden? Basically, said if you eat this fruit, your eyes will be open and you'll be as God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you won't need God to tell you what to do. You can make up your own mind. Boy, that's a mess. I don't know about you. I have trouble making decisions anyway. And I sure hate to have the responsibility to try to decide moment by moment what I should and shouldn't do. I'd much rather just let the Spirit of God lead me. So you see, he's saying here that and I don't even know where I got on all this from, but I'm trying to get back to what I started on, this idea of thinking that you have to obey the law. You don't. You're not under the law anymore. The Spirit of God dwells in your spirit. You have the Word of God in your hand. As you read and study the Word of God, the Spirit of God will take this Word and illumine your mind. And as Romans 12 says, you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You'll begin to think differently. You'll have different desires. Your desire will be to live for God. Your desire will be 
to have a relationship and fellowship with God. Your desire will be to please God, and the Spirit of God will see to it that you do it. You're not required to worry about keeping a bunch of rules and regulations. You walk in the Spirit. But a lot of people now will take that beyond what the Bible means for it to be. There are people today, and the Bible talks about this, that we shouldn't allow grace to become a license to sin. In uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 16, it says, As free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Uh, Jude 1, 4 says, For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So even though in, un, when we're under grace, we're not under the law. We don't have to worry about keeping a set of rules and regulations, okay? But listen, if you are living in obedience to the Word of God, living under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit, you will be pleasing to God. You will be keeping the law of God. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled the law already. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. And, and uh, He says, but I come that to fulfill it. I feel like I'm having a difficult time making this point. And I don't want you to miss it. Because, and, and here again, Paul says that we've been slanderously reported as saying, let us sin more that grace may abound. And I don't want you to, to get the wrong idea either with what I'm trying to tell you that I believe the Bible teaches. You don't have to keep the law in order to please God because you can't. When the Spirit of God comes into you and saves your soul, He gives you the desire and the ability to live a life that's pleasing to God. Amen. If you stay in the Word and you walk with the Lord and walk in the Spirit, He will see to it that your life is lived in such a way that it's pleasing to God. But the grace of God is not a license to just run out here and live to the flesh and live in sin. And there are people today that do that. They'll say, well, all, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I believe He died for my sins. I believe He's the Son of God. I'm going on with my sinful lifestyle. You can't be saved and have that attitude because if the Spirit is in you, you won't feel that way. You won't want to sin. So you could say, well, you can be saved and sin all you want to, but if you're truly saved, you won't want to sin. Does that make sense? So that's what he's trying to say here, is that even though well, let's just read this. Let's just read one more time. Start with verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? He's trying to say here, if, if, if God looks, if His righteousness shines because of our unrighteousness, why does He judge us? Because we're unrighteous. It still doesn't make it right to do it. He says, because how can God judge the world? God's going to have to judge the world according to His law and His word and His, His way of thinking. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my line to His glory, why yet am I judged also as a sinner? And not rather, he says, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. So he's trying to say here that even though our unrighteousness causes God's righteousness to shine, that still does not mean that God wants us to live 
and unrighteous life. But where is our righteousness found? In Christ. I'm a sinner, and Jesus Christ is not. He's righteous. When I die, when I go to to Jesus for salvation, what do I bring to Him? My sins. That's all I have. I put my sins upon Him. On the cross, He took my sins upon Him, and He paid for them for me. My sins have been paid for in Christ. So Jesus had no sin. He's completely righteous. I'm unrighteous, and all I have is sin. So I give Him my sin. He pays for it and sanctifies me before God and then gives me His righteousness. So now, in Christ... I'm righteous before God. I hope that makes sense. Let's move on. Verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, verse 10, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. No, not one. So he's, he's making a very plain case here that nobody, but nobody, has ever been righteous before God in their own merit. Notice what he says here. He says that there is none righteous. And then he makes a point to let you know. No, not one. Not even one person. Not even one person can say, I'm righteous before God. Apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ being imputed to them because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Notice that uh, this includes everybody. And notice the things he says here, that that we are not right before God. To be righteous means to be right before God. None of us are right before God. Uh, Verse And then the second thing, he says, none of us comprehend. God. We have no comprehension of God. No, nobody even begins to understand God. Look, the lost people in this world have no clue who the true God really is. They know that there is a God and they want to make that God all kind of things. Some say the earth is God. Some say that nature and creation is God. Some have other unseen deities that they name as God. Some say that they themselves are God. They know there's a God. They just don't want to admit or they don't know who He is. There's only one place to learn of the true God and that's in the Bible. The greatest possession that we have on this earth, the greatest physical possession that we have on this earth is the copy of the Word of God. Whether it's on your phone or your iPad or on white pages with black ink, in red ink a copy of the word of God and think about think about what the world has done and tried to do with this book early on in the church around the third century or so when the when Christianity become the state religion of Rome 
they hoarded up all the copies and manuscripts of the Word of God, wrote it, translated it into a language that only the very educated could read, and told people that they had to go to certain people to hear the Word of God and to be told what the Word of God means. And then when the Reformation took place, the Word of God came out of that storehouse and began to be translated into all different languages, written out in books that the common man, the common person, could get a hold of and could read for themselves. I'll never forget seeing in a museum a Bible they call the Martyr's Bible. It had bloodstains on it. The story was that a man lost his life, was killed for that Bible, trying to get the Word of God into people's hands. And then today in our modern time, two things are going on with the Word of God where the enemy's trying to keep it out of people's hearts and, and minds. Um, the modern translations of the Bible, some of them can't even be called the Bible anymore. Some of them's not even the Word of God anymore. They've taken the Word of God and, and corrupted it into man's Bible. Remember what is written in, in Timothy? It says that in the last days that men will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will heap to themselves teachers that basically will scratch their itch, you know. Let them hear what they want to hear. And that doesn't just include preaching, but Bible translations. People have Bible translations that tell them what they want to hear and make God be who they want Him to be and what they want it to be about. And then not only have they done that, but a lot of, a lot of places now just throw this book aside and just don't even look at it. The scholars over time have said, well, the book of Genesis... It's, it's not it's not to be taken literally it's, it's just a it's just an allegory you know and, and they'll say you know the book of Daniel well we don't think it was written by Daniel and uh, well there's just too much error there and you know they just want to they go along and, and they keep tearing the pages out saying we don't believe this is this true the enemy's working to get this out of people's hands so that it won't get into their hearts and won't get into their mind. This is what tells us about God. So people don't comprehend God. The only way you'll ever know who God is is to get in this book and pray that the Holy Spirit will open your mind so that you can understand who God is. It's the only why. So he says they they have no they're not righteous, they have no comprehension of God, they have no desire to find God. Most of this world don't even want to know God. Let me tell you, most of the world is glad to be throwing away things like the Bible so they don't have to feel responsible. To make a decision. They don't, have to, they don't have to be reminded. You ever notice when you get saved that sometimes you lose some friends that you had been friends with before you got saved or family members? They just they really don't want to be around you anymore? Look, if you're under conviction, you feel uncomfortable in the presence of anybody that has the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you know deep down that that's right. And you don't want to have to admit it. You have no desire for God. And anything that makes 
that come to your mind and makes you have to make a decision, if you feel uncomfortable, you just don't want to be around. No desire for God. And he says that they're completely off the right path. They don't even know the way of God. People in this world are walking down the, the, the broad way. Uh, Matthew seven thirteen and 14 says, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Listen. <laughs> Most folks are on their way to hell. You understand that? If you follow the crowd, you'll follow them away from God, not toward Him. If you follow the crowd, you will not be getting closer to God. You're getting further from Him. You're on the wrong path. You're on the broad way that leads to destruction. And then He says, lastly too, He says, we are totally useless to God, unable to do anything good in His sight. Now, we're going to stop right there. I told Nancy this morning we just have to see how far we could we could get. But we're gonna stop right there. But that's a good place to stop because I want everybody in here to think about that for a minute. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad. If you're lost this morning, yeah, I want you to feel bad. I want you to hear this and realize where you are right now. If you're saved, this ought to make you feel better because you'll realize where God brought you from. He says here, that he says, they are together become unprofitable. Unprofitable means that we are useless to God. We are no good to God. We're just as well to be tossed out and tossed away from God because we're no good to Him in our lost condition. Unprofitable. says, There is none that doeth good, no, not one. We've become useless to God in our sinful state, and we're unable to do anything good at all in His sight. The tree of knowledge had two branches on it, so to speak. It was the tree of knowledge of what? Good and evil. So you could... Live on either branch, let's just say. You, you, could, you could either decide to do good or do evil. Now, so don't, don't misunderstand. There are people in this world that we call good people. They're upstanding people in their community. They get involved in their community. They help people. They do good things. Some of them may even attend a church. They may give money to things that people have, you know, all kind. Of, it could be through the church. It could be through things in the community to help people in need. We, we would call them good people. If you're with me, say Amen. So you could be lost and be living from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you could still be looking like you are a good person. And of course, we all understand the evil side of it. There are people that choose to just totally go that way. And everything they do is evil and everything they do is hurtful to other people. We, we understand that. It's the good that we have trouble with. But you see, that's our lost condition. We've, we were sinners because Eve and Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we know good and evil. But just because we choose to do what we call good doesn't make us good in God's sight. Because the Bible says that there are none that are good but God. 
Remember when the guy called Jesus good master? He says, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. So he was saying, are you calling me God? So there's none good but God. So no matter what you and I do in this life, whether we call it good or evil, in God's sight, if you're lost and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are unprofitable to God. All of your good works will amount to nothing. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where it talks about the Christians standing before the judgment of God and being judged for our works? And he says there are works that are done in the flesh, works of wood, hay, stubble. You can do good things even in the church. Even in the name of the Lord. And it be in the flesh. And it be for, for ulterior motives that only you and God know. And that won't be, that won't be eternal. It won't, it won't gift you any reward from God. So understand... I think this is one of the problems with the gospel message today is that we've all been taught that we're basically good. Look, I've even heard some of these so-called preachers today say that people are basically good. That's not what the Bible says, is it? What did we just read? There's none good, no, not one. And you can't be saved until you come to that realization. We live in a time when people want to excuse things. Well, that's just how they are. That's just their personality. They can't help that. They get that honest. And we excuse it. Listen, let's call it what it is. It's sin. Okay? Because if you don't do that, you'll never come to the point to where you say, God, I know that before your sight, I am no good. I am unprofitable to you. I am useless. I deserve to die and go to hell. You can't be saved until you realize that. God gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. If you think there's anything in you that God ought to be proud of, then you're mistaken. You got to come to Him humbly and say, God, I'm no good. But I do believe that Jesus Christ took all of my sin, all of that evil, all of that stuff that's not good. I believe that He paid for every bit of it on the cross for me. And I believe that He's my sacrifice for sin. And in, through Him, in your sight, you see me now as righteous. So if you're lost this morning, you better think about that. There ain't nothing in you that's going to get you any favor with God. If you're saved this morning, You'll go out of here rejoicing. That God, I know I am no good at all apart from you, but praise God for your Son, Jesus Christ, who made a way for me. I believe it. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, take this word, multiply it in our minds and hearts. Help us to see ourselves as you see us and to see you as you are, as you want us to see us as our Lord and our Savior. Help us to humble ourselves before you and believe on Jesus Christ, the one and only God, the one and only way to God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.